You have been listening to selections from the Cylinder Preservation Project on the Gridley Wave Network. Dateline Jassoom is next. On tape delay from the Barsoomian Blade Bureau in Chicago, Illinois. Dateline Jassoom. A Panthen Press production. For the fans of Edgar Rice Burroughs and Pulp Adventure. Here's your host, Elmo. Welcome to show number 13. And I just now realized that I should have devoted this episode to the Monster Men, but I didn't. Instead, here's a little piece of fan fiction that I really like from Steve Gack, the hairy one, Wadding. Steve Wadding, Computer Engineer of Mars, by Stephen Vance Wadding. I am a 40-year-old man. So far as I can recollect, I have always been at least a little bit overweight and at least a little bit out of shape. I was sitting in at a critical design review. I soon became so drowsy that I could scarcely resist the strong desire to lean back in my chair for a few moments' rest, but I knew that this would never do, as it would mean being noticed by the review board, who might call upon me at any moment. With an effort, I started to get up for a drink of water, only to slump back in my chair. I could hear the rustling of the transparencies on the overhead projector, but I couldn't move to look at the slides. Then I heard the review board questioning the presenter and knew that I needed to pay attention. You're saying the trajectory of the mass of the object is equal to the... With a superhuman effort, I strove to break my awful bonds. And then there was a sharp click, and I stood against the wall of the auditorium. By the light of the projector, I could see there before me my own body, slumped in the seat. There I sat clothed, and yet here I stood but naked as the moment of my birth. I realized I had become bored to death. Sure, that phrase is bandied about all the time, but I had never heard of it actually happening before. I walked out of the building and looked up into the sky. In the daylight, it shouldn't have been visible, but I could see the red speck that I knew to be Mars. And for me, a NASA engineer, it had always held the power of irresistible enchantment. My longing was beyond the power of opposition. There was an instant of extreme cold and utter darkness. I opened my eyes upon a strange and weird landscape. I knew I was on Mars. You know what it looks like. You've read the description already elsewhere. Nearby was a low, walled enclosure about four feet in height. Springing to my feet, I rose in the air about two yards. Not three yards. Like I said, I'm overweight and out of shape. I had to learn how to walk again in the low Martian gravity. I worked my way over to the enclosure and looked over the wall to see that it had a glass roof and contained hundreds of large eggs. Some of them had already hatched, revealing scrawny, green, six-limbed creatures. Get off my foot! Get off my foot! Engrossed in the activities of the hatchlings, I didn't notice the full-grown Martians who approached me from behind. I heard a rattle behind me and turned to see a 15-foot-tall creature riding a hideous mount and holding a 40-foot spear pointing at my chest. Several others accompanied it. What? 
is your name? I leaped to get on top of the enclosure and wound up flying 20 feet up in the air and landing not on the soft moss on the other side of the enclosure, but on the glass roof, smack dab in the middle of the thing. Despite the lesser gravity, my weight was sufficient to break through the glass, landing me on my butt in the midst of the hatching creatures, who immediately attacked me. I leaped again and unfortunately landed in the middle of the group of adults who had attacked me, knocking one to the ground beneath me, stunning him. One of the others dismounted and drew a sword. I grabbed the sword from the fallen Martian and tried to remember what I had learned from my three semesters of fencing in college. I was never very good, but it always had a powerful parry. This stood me in good stead as it allowed me to block the first attack. However, my powerful parry had always had the unfortunate side effect of bringing my point way offline, so I was not prepared for the follow-up. I felt the sword cut through my chest and fell to the ground. It was dark when I opened my eyes again. The presenter had just turned off the overhead projector, but the lights hadn't been turned on yet. I stood and stretched, noting an unusual stiffness in my limbs. I felt a moment of confusion as I thought about my visit to Mars. Shouldn't there have been a princess? This segment of Dateline Jethoom is being brought to you by Cantos Can, new and used flyers. For the best deals in all greater and lesser helium, see Cantos Can, located near the Tower of Lesser Helium. And remember, when other dealers can't make the deal, Cantos Can. I wrote the following essay several months ago with the intention of submitting it to one of the fanzines, maybe the Burroughs Bulletin or Urbania, but I never got around to it. And so I present it to you here on Dateline Jessum. My grandfather, John Long, was born in 1905 on Chicago's Great West Side. He used to insist that Edgar Rice Burroughs was black. A working-class white man from the highly segregated neighborhoods of early 20th century Chicago, Grandpa claimed that the opening pages of the Mucker described the area he grew up in and people he had personally known. I believed him without question. By that time, Grandpa had long since escaped to rural Wisconsin, where he built his own home brick by brick with the help of his Irish bride. I was the age when boys believe most everything their grandfathers tell them. Everything, that is, except that the creator of White Skin of the Apes was black. Not that it would have mattered to me if he was. I spent timeless eternities in my grandfather's basement, with a bookshelf that opened doors to Barsoom, the Earth's core, and the heart of the Dark Continent. The skin color of the man who created those doors made no difference to an enthralled ten-year-old. A tour during the 2005 Dum Dum revealed that my grandfather, E.R.B., and Billy Byrne all grew up within blocks of each other, not far from where the United Center now stands, home of the Chicago Bulls. We motored through a neighborhood that is the latest example of the city's efforts at urban renewal. The housing projects of today look like townhomes, but remain inhabited by some of Chicago's poorest people, mostly African American. I think some must have wondered about all the middle-aged white guys with cameras on that school bus, taking pictures of vacant lots.
I'm not sure where Grandpa got his impression of a black Edgar Rice Burroughs. Perhaps from a tattered and faded dust jacket photo. But he held firmly to the belief, even in later years, when I showed him pictures that proved otherwise. He'd just shake his head and say, Ain't that something? A colored man. Having spent long years with the idea that ERB was black, ERB would remain black for my grandfather. John Long grew up in a time, I suppose, when stubbornness helped shape the opinions of many. Petty prejudices and mistrust must have been colored by that stubbornness, too, along with deeper hatreds in some. I doubt that my grandfather ever knew a black man on a first-name basis. I'm sure that he was relieved to have moved from the old Chicago neighborhood before they moved in. And I recall the look of silent horror on the face of his Irish bride, my dear grandmother, when they dropped me off at the dorm for my first year of college and discovered that my roommate was African-American. Today when I read the mucker, some descriptions bring alive for me the world that shaped my grandfather and those who lived in it with him. Outsiders do not trespass with impunity, Burroughs tells us. That simple phrase helps me understand how far we have come in the way we think today about those living on the next block, even if a glance at the headline sometimes reminds us how far there is yet to go. I never saw any outrageously racist behavior in my grandfather, or heard him utter a truly unkind word toward anyone of a different color or creed. He laughed uproariously at Archie Bunker, but I always got the feeling that he saw a kindred spirit on the screen, while the younger generation smiled at the character's old-fashioned wrong-headedness. Still, I did not believe that Grandpa was a bigot in the way we define the term today, and I know that growing up in the time and the place that he did, his prejudices were ingrained. But in mannerisms and offhand comments, he sometimes exhibited the suspicious view of people from another neighborhood or another culture that I suppose was common in his day, if unacceptable in ours. When I think of the kind, hard-working man that he was... It's difficult to grasp how prejudice could also exist within my grandpa, even if it was subconscious. It's the same quandary I face when the subject of ERB's supposed racism surfaces, as it inevitably does when discussing Tarzan in other works by the Master of Adventure. Recent published works have claimed that ERB was a racist, that his whole story has not been fully told. But I reject those comments, like most fans, just as I reject similar thoughts about my grandfather. It seems to me that for ERB, the world he grew up in is a vital part of the whole story. That's how it was for my grandfather, and how it is for all of us. We know all the usual arguments fans use to defend Burroughs against charges of racism, that Tarzan had friends and allies among the Africans as well as enemies, that ERB was ahead of his time regarding racial attitudes in some of his tales, most notably the Apache novels. But the truth is there are still passages that make me cringe when I delve into Tarzan's Africa, even if it is as fictional as John Carter's Mars.
The truth is, those same passages also bothered a ten-year-old boy in his grandpa's basement. Maybe he didn't know why they bothered him at the time, but they did, and he knew that ERB was no black man. Today, some of the people closest to me are African American. The land of their ancestors bears no resemblance to the place ERB wrote about, not that he meant for it to. No, Grandpa, Edgar Rice Burroughs was as white as you and me. Maybe you've met him by now and have both had a good laugh over the misunderstanding. And maybe that amazement you felt was a germ of something in your old world mind, the beginning of a way of thinking that has helped create the present of better understanding that your grandchildren and great-grandchildren enjoy and are working to improve even more. I know now what you were thinking. How could a writer you love so much be something you had no context for understanding? Ain't that something? Gek, thanks for sending in computer engineer of Mars. It was great. I also want to thank Ray LeBeau for helping out with this show, too. That commercial he wrote and read for me was just fantastic. Go uh, check out Cantos Can Flyers. This is Elmo from the Barsoomian Blade Bureau in Chicago, signing off. (laughs) 